Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609. 3711. All right, let's get right into it. This is episode 20 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Monday, November 8th, 2021. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. I want to start today's show by expressing my appreciation to my friend Dan Bongino for allowing me to come on his nationally syndicated talk show Friday for 12 minutes and tell all of his listeners on over 300 radio stations how Cumulus Media fired me for refusing to get an experimental gene therapy drug injected into my veins. I also had the opportunity to say the election was stolen on all of Dan's 300 radio stations. God bless Dan Bongino. I have never seen anyone in the radio industry so willing to put his money where his mouth is and stand up for his fellow broadcasters. What Cumulus did was an outrage, and Dan allowed me to tell the whole country about it. All right, speaking of outrages, who does Terry Bradshaw think he is? This guy, this guy, you know, I I don't think that he is intentionally lying. I just think that he, uh, he got his bell rung a few minutes, too many times. No, I'm not saying he's as far gone as Biden, but I just don't, don't think he knows what he's talking about. Here's Terry Bradshaw yesterday on television. I'd give Aaron Rodgers some advice. It would have been nice if he'd have just come to the Naval Academy and learned how to be honest. Yeah. Learned learned not to lie, because that's what you did, Aaron. You lied to everyone. I understand immunized. What you were doing was taking stuff that would keep you from getting COVID-19. You got COVID-19. Ivermectin is a cattle dewormer. Sorry, folks. That's what it is. We are a divided nation politically. We're a divided nation on the COVID-19, whether or not to take the vaccine. And unfortunately, we've got players that pretty much think only about themselves. And I'm extremely disappointed in the actions of Aaron Rodgers. You blithering idiot. Who the hell do you think you are? No, pal, you're the liar. You're the liar. All right, let's go uh, right to the Federalist.com. The great Kylie Zimple over the Federalist.com. Nine truths from Aaron Rodgers' explosive vaccine interview you aren't allowed to say. Now, you're not allowed to say it if you are a sportscaster. On an NFL show, you're not allowed to say it. But I will. I will. I uh, I count it an honor today to stand with Aaron Rodgers and against lying flax like 
Terry Bradshaw. You don't have to like Aaron Rodgers to pump your fist when he drops COVID truth bombs on a hit sports talk show. This is Kylie Zimple at The Federalist. The Green Bay Packers quarterback, who is currently under fire from the COVID scolds for being, quote, secretly, unquote, unvaccinated and contracting the virus, joined the Pat McAfee show to discuss the situation. And let's just say he didn't hold back. Here are the top nine most based things Aaron Rodgers said on that show. Number one, the your selfish smear is media propaganda. Rogers said the idea that unvaccinated people are the most dangerous people in society is the media's propaganda narrative. He said that is what the media has been trying to do. They're trying to shame and out and cancel all of us non-vaccinated people, call us selfish. I mean, that's the propaganda line too now. You're selfish for making a decision that's in the best interest of your body. No, 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 no. No, you need to hear in his own words. You need to hear in his own words. Uh, you know, to, to have a decision because, oh, well, you're, you know, you're uh, close contact. That means you're out for five days. Not based on any science other than we're going to just keep this propaganda narrative going that unvaccinated people are the uh, most dangerous people in society. Um, so, uh, and again, can I ask some, can I ask some questions here now? Can yeah, I, let me finish up here a moment. Got it, got it. I just want to say, you know, that is what the media has been trying to do. They're trying to shame and out uh, and cancel all of us non-vaccinated people. Call us selfish. Yeah. I mean, that's the propaganda line, too. Now, you're selfish for making a decision that's in the best interest of your body. Now, I've already spelled out, which I shouldn't have to, but I've already spelled out the issues of my own personal body. Okay, wait, 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 wait. There's something Bradshaw said that I can't let go. I can't just let go by. Terry Bradshaw said, ivermectin is a horse dewormer. I mean, forget the fact that the people who developed ivermectin got a Nobel Prize just six years ago for its use on humans. Terry Bradshaw says it's a horse dewormer. Terry Bradshaw is a dumbass. I'm sorry. I, I, I try to figure out a different way to say it. I know that's not couth. I know it's not polite, but I, I couldn't figure out a different way to say it. Sorry, Mom. Number two on the list of truths that Aaron Rodgers' explosive vaccine interview brought out that you aren't allowed to say, except here. You can say it here. I don't have anybody telling me what I'm not allowed to say anymore. Number two, personal health should be private. After going after the media for taking shots at him, Aaron Rodgers said personal health decisions, in my opinion, should be private. And they shouldn't have to be over-scrutinized by, you know, people who are only pushing their own propaganda. See, the media went berserk last week after the quarterback tested positive writing long screeds and ranting on air about how Rodgers had, quote, lied, unquote, about his vaccination status back in August by saying he had been, quote, immunized, unquote. Rodgers said, for the media out there taking shots at me, you don't know my story. 
Now you do. So quit lying about me. Hey, Terry, by the way, quit lying about Aaron. Okay, Terry? Bradshaw? Number three, pandemic of the unvaccinated is a lie. Rogers took a straight shot at Dementia Joe Biden and all who carry water for his narrative by obliterating the talking point that COVID-19 is now some kind of pandemic of the unvaccinated, uh, unvaccinated, something the federal government continues to double down on with its sweeping vaccine mandate. He said this idea that it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated is just a total lie. If the vaccine is so great, then how come people are still getting COVID and spreading COVID and unfortunately dying from COVID? If the vaccine's so safe, then how come the manufacturers of the vaccine have full immunity from lawsuits? He says there's a lot we still don't know about the shot, saying that's wrong and reckless to market it as a cure-all. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. But I want you to hear it in his own words. Facilities that are vaxxed that tested positive. So this idea that it's a pandemic of the unvaxxed is just a total lie. And I go back to like these two questions for the, uh, you know, for this whole mob. Like, uh, number one, if the vaccine is so great, then how come people are still getting COVID and spreading COVID and unfortunately dying from COVID? Like, if the vaccine is so safe, then how come the manufacturers of the vaccine have full immunity? So let's just step back and realize, like, this vaccine is revolutionary, the things that they're doing. However, we don't know a whole lot about it. And to just say that it's a blanket for all that ails you, in my opinion, is wrong and reckless. And... For the media out there taking shots at me, like, you don't know my story, now you do. So quit lying about me. And personal health decisions, in my opinion, should be private. And they shouldn't have to be, like, gone through the ringer and over-scrutinized by, you know, people who are just pushing their own type of propaganda on the people and, and ideals. You want to have a conversation about it? I'm more than one of them. See, but the problem is Terry Bradshaw is a very wealthy man, and he doesn't have to pay attention the things he doesn't want to pay attention to. That's the deal. People tell Terry Bradshaw what to say. That's the deal. Number four in the list of the nine truths from Aaron Rodgers' explosive vaccine interview you aren't allowed to say. Number four, Rogers warned the problem with this is it is so political and health shouldn't be political. All right. No, no, no. Let, let me let me just play it for you. Let me just play it for you. He he gets deep into it. And he makes some points here that Terry Bradshaw wouldn't have any idea what to do with. For sharing of, of information. It was such a witch hunt. They they wanted to out and shame and denigrate every single person who didn't immediately say, oh yeah, I got the you know Pfizer, I got the Moderna, whatever. 
I, I wanted it to go away. I mean, everyone in the squad knew I was not vaccinated. Everyone in the organization knew I wasn't vaccinated. I wasn't hiding it for anybody. I was trying to minimize and mitigate having to have this conversation that would go on and on. And, and, and there were people in the media who somehow found out about it and, and been sitting on it for a couple months. Um, so it wasn't like this thing was just hidden until this week. Like, people knew it and they sat on it. At some point, I knew I was going to have to discuss it. And, you know, I was ready to discuss it. But the problem with this is it is so political. And health should not be political. It shouldn't be that, you know, Trump endorsed ivermectin and HCQ. And so take that shit off. It doesn't work. You know, I mean, in, in general, look at I think we all should have been a little hesitant when Trump in 2020 was championing these uh, vaccines that were coming so quick. What did the left say? And I'm talking about every member of the left. Don't trust the vaccine. Don't get the vaccine. You're going to die from the vaccine. And then what happened? Biden wins and everything flips. Shouldn't that initially give you a little bit of pause and go, hold on a second. Isn't it about health and not about like politics? And to that point, has any member of the health staff this entire time got up and actually talked about real health? Have they talked about exercise, a healthy diet, like eating real food, drinking water, taking vitamins, vitamin D deficiency, and, and what that causes in the body? No. There hasn't been any of that. So, hey, so I'm just, look, I'm going to critically think about what's best for my own health. I'm not judging anybody else. I'm not saying you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. But I'm making a decision that's based on what's best for me and my own health. And for me, it was a no-brainer. All right, so think about, think about the mindset of people like Terry Bradshaw who are attacking this man. They're saying it's so dumb that Aaron Rodgers would be agreeing with a guy like Joe Rogan on how to treat COVID. Instead, you ought to get your advice from more trusted sources like Big Bird and Elmo. <laughs> uh, hat tip to uh, the great Greg Price on that one. Okay, number five on the list of nine truths from Aaron Rodgers' explosive vaccine interview that you aren't allowed to say, un unless you do what I do. Number five. The vaccinated are still infectious. Rogers said that because he's unvaccinated, he's required to undergo COVID testing every day while all the vaccinated players don't have to, despite their ability still to contract and transmit the virus. Rogers said, I tested over 300 times before finally testing positive. Like I said, it was probably from a vaccinated individual. I don't think that many of the policies are rooted in the science. The only time I haven't worn my mask is when I'm around all vaccinated people. Number six, health is not a one-size-fits-all. Aaron Rodgers announced health is not a one-size-fits-all for everybody, adding that he was allergic to an ingredient in the mRNA vaccines. Enough said. Number seven on the list of nine truths from Aaron Rodgers' explosive vaccine interview that you're not allowed to say. You're not allowed to say it if you're 
Terry Bradshaw, that's for sure. COVID recovery offers robust immunity. Roger said, I'm going to have the best immunity possible now. Citing the study from Israel on the robust immunity acquired from COVID infection and recovery. The facts support this. Epidemiologist and biostatistician Martin Koldorf, who was a professor at Harvard Medical School for a decade, recently published an analysis breaking down the methodology of different studies on natural immunity. He demonstrated how the Israeli study, the one Roger cited, is superior in its methodology and precision of its findings than the prevailing study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Rogers added, there's a lot to natural immunity, and natural immunity has not been a part of the conversation. Now, I'm guessing if you asked Terry Bradshaw about natural immunity, he would not know what you're, he would not have any idea what you're talking about. Number eight, science is better than shaming. Of the many rules he had already illustrated that were not based in science, Rogers said, some of the rules to me are not based in science at all. They're based purely in trying to out and shame people like needing to wear a mask at a podium when every person in the room is vaccinated and wearing a mask makes no sense to me. Bodily autonomy is a right. And the shaming and the outing that, you know, people seem to get off on so much of finding these, these people who, you know, oh, my God, can you believe these crackpots who are not vaccinated? Everybody has their own story and their own reasons for doing things, but this shaming cancel society is wrong. Last but not least, number nine, a list of nine truths from Aaron Rodgers' explosive vaccine interview that you're not allowed to say if you're Terry Bradshaw. Number nine, overall health is important too. Regarding the pandemic that was exacerbated mightily by comorbidities and especially by obesity, Aaron Rodgers said, it's a virus of health, and the most important thing would be educating people on how to live a healthier life. By the way, early data showed that obesity tripled a person's risk of hospitalization and 78% of those hospitalized with the Wuhan virus were overweight or obese. So there you go. There you go. Terry Bradshaw, you be clowned yourself yesterday. Terry Bradshaw, Aaron Rodgers isn't a liar. You're the liar, and you should be ashamed of yourself. Hmm? No, I don't mind. Oh, I'd love for him to come on the show. I would love... For Terry Bradshaw to come on the show. Mano a mano. I'm not afraid to talk to anybody. Not afraid to talk to anybody. Okay, so. This uh, Kyle Rittenhouse trial this morning. You know, Kyle clearly shot three people in self-defense. The FBI kept the exculpatory evidence of the drone footage from the defense for many months. Because, of course, as we know, the FBI is like the palace guard for the Democrat regime. Anyway, anyway, two of the people died. One of them lived. His arm got all goofed up. 
Because, again, Kyle Rittenhouse shot these three guys in self-defense. They were trying to kill him. So a question this morning, and I don't know if it was from the prosecution or the defense. The prosecution has been so hapless in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. It may have been from them, but it looks more like a, a defense question. The guy on the stand was Gage Grosskreutz, the guy whose arm is permanently disabled because a lot of it got shot away when Kyle Rittenhouse was trying to protect himself. Here's the question. Mr. Grosskreutz, you saw the crowd attacking Mr. Rittenhouse, who you believed was an active shooter, so you drew your firearm to finish him off, correct? Answer, yes. No, no more questions. Yeah, that had to be from the defense. Oh, man. Oh, man. So, Dementia Joe snapped, snapped at a reporter. What? What? Seriously? I'd like to ask you real quick, sir, where, where do you stand? You said last week uh, that this report about uh, migrant families at the border getting payments uh, was garbage. No, I didn't uh, say that. Let's get it straight. You said everybody coming across the border gets five hundred, four hundred fifty thousand dollars. So the number was what you had a problem. The number I was referring to. Okay. Now here's the thing. Sure. If in fact, because of the the outrageous behavior of the last administration, you coming across the border, whether it was legal or illegal, and you lost your child, you lost your child. It's gone. You deserve some kind of compensation, no matter what the circumstances. What that will be, I have no idea. I have no idea. But you're saying the DOJ negotiating settlement. He snapped. Dementia patients do that a lot. He snapped. Of course, what happened at the border was there are a lot of human traffickers, and the children had to be separated from the adults so Border Patrol could figure out whether they're actually family or whether they're being sex trafficked. But Biden doesn't care about that because he's in coots the cartels, in my humble opinion, and you're entitled to it. The great Nick Searcy, responding to what you just heard from Dementia Joe, said, face it, this corrupt, stupid pervert Joe Biden is a liar and is deliberately destroying America. If Democrats had any conscience or shame whatsoever, even they would denounce this abusive, sick old man. That's true. That's true, and you know it's true. Now, the White House announced that the Justice Department will determine the amount of payouts to migrant families. You got that? Since when has the Justice Department been in charge of... Oh, oh, okay, it's Director of White House Office of Public Engagement, Cedric Richmond, announcing it. Now, Cedric Richmond was a longtime corrupt Democrat congressman from Louisiana. And you know how I know he's corrupt? Moments after Biden was installed, that very same week, the week of January 20th this year, Cedric Richmond 
is all over television saying the Trump administration didn't leave us any kind of a vaccine implementation plan. So in other words, Operation Warp Speed didn't, didn't exist. Again, never forget, never forget, never forget. People who work for Biden get paid to lie. And they have to be very comfortable with looking right into a camera and lying through their teeth. Now remember what Biden said when it first came up about the payments to the illegals. That's not going to happen. You guys keep sending that garbage out, but it's not true. However, now he says, of course, it will happen. But he has no idea, no idea how much money they're going to pay these illegals. A lot of whom, no doubt, were human traffickers. A lot of whom, no doubt, are human traffickers. Look, a lot of people used to say Barack Obama was the worst president in the history of this country. To which I would always reply, well, maybe, but how familiar are you with Woodrow Wilson? And hardly anybody was. And a lot of people are now saying that Dementia Joe is like the third term of the Obama administration. And I'm thinking, well, maybe, but it could be more like the third term of the Wilson administration. Wilson had like 100,000 political prisoners. Wilson had uh, goon squads, people with baseball bats, running around beating up people who disagreed with how he was prosecuting uh, World War One or... Uh, people who didn't want to say the Pledge of Allegiance because um, they saw the part about one nation indivisible going against the Tenth Amendment of the United States Constitution. So let's look at what the New York Post is saying this morning in their op-ed this sure looks like Biden's DOJ persecuting an opposition journalist. They say you don't have to be a fan of James O'Keefe's style of journalism to be worried about how the government is reacting to it. The FBI and Manhattan federal prosecutors are investigating the case of Ashley Biden's diary. The president's daughter says it was stolen in a burglary last year. An obscure right-wing website wound up publishing what it said are pages from it about 10 days before the election. O'Keefe says someone shot the diary to his Project Veritas, claiming Biden had left it somewhere. His outfit didn't use it in part because he couldn't verify it, and he says he informed law enforcement of the whole thing. But he has some ties to the outfit that did publish, which seems to be why the feds raided the homes of several current or former Project Veritas employees before dawn in O'Keefe's own case. He's also outraged that the feds urged him not to go public with the subpoenas but somehow dropped the dime to the New York Times 
which started calling for comment an hour after the first raids Thursday morning. Journalists can't be prosecuted for publishing stolen material unless they were part of the theft. And the theft in question hardly seems to rise to a federal crime and shield laws. Normally, mean law enforcement can't make reporters reveal a thing about their sources, even if they didn't publish anything. Journalists regularly publish material that has been leaked or even taken. Consider the New York Times running President Trump's tax returns. Unless the feds know something about Veritas sanctioning the burglary, the diary does not warrant pre-dawn raids. It has all the marks of a political vendetta. That's not at all a good look for a Biden Justice Department already in ill repute for intimidating parents who just ask questions at school board meetings. Yeah. Yeah, it is, isn't it? So you got a situation here. I mean, I, you know, I keep going back to this with all the abuses, all the FBI abuses, and not just at headquarters, not just the higher ups. Not one whistleblower. Not one whistleblower. Because, I mean, we keep hearing the overwhelming majority of FBI agents, of course, are pure as the driven snow. It's just the, just the main folks. Really? Y'all still believe that? Because I don't. I don't. So, the great attorney Harmeet K. Dillon, founder of the Dillon Law Firm, and founder of the Liberty Center, says she's proud to represent Project Veritas in multiple matters. She says the very freedom of the press is put at risk by pre-dawn raids on journalists, and this American lawyer believes it is worth fighting for every one of the rights guaranteed by the First Amendment. But she asks this question, who will be the first member of Congress to call for a hearing into this gross abuse of power to benefit the Biden family. Now, the great Mike Davis, former chief counsel for nominations for Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley, former law clerk for Justice Gorsuch, he responds saying a Republican senator should put a hold on all United States attorney nominees until we get answers on this abuse of power. Okay? And this. Illegal economic migrants flood into America. That's a felony. 
It enriches human traffickers and puts the lives of women and children in grave danger. So what's Joe Biden's response? His Justice Department is going to settle frivolous lawsuits and pay $450,000 each per person? Really? Seriously? And this, again, He links to uh, Caitlin Collins, CNN's chief White House correspondent, talking to Joe Biden back on May 21st. Interesting. Would be seizing reporters' phone records and emails, and would you prevent your Justice Department from doing that? Only yours, but beyond yours, prevent no. But honestly, absolutely, positively, it's wrong. It's simply, simply wrong. So you won't let your Justice Department? I will do not that. let that happen. And yet they do. And yet they do. Will not let that happen. He's not in charge. You know he's not in charge. We all know he's not in charge. Mike Davis reminds us the Justice Department literally seized journalist John Solomon's communications in April, the month before Joe Biden tells Caitlin Collins from CNN, oh, I won't let him do that. Right? Rudy Giuliani's New York apartment searched by federal investigators. You know, the records of the attorney for Joe Biden's main political rival. Our State Department would issue statements condemning other countries for this. Naturally, mainstream liberal reporters simply ignore it all, ignore it all, as it doesn't fit their narrative. It doesn't fit their narrative. I'm going to keep sharing the truth with you about what's going on as long as God continues to make me able. And it's an honor and it's a privilege to be able to come before this microphone every day at noon Eastern, 11 Central for the live stream and and everybody else listening to the podcast later on. It's an honor and a privilege. And um, one of the folks that helps make us able to continue doing this thing is a friend of mine named Art Wilborn. Now, if you're like most Americans, you could see Obamacare coming down the road and you knew that the so-called Affordable Care Act was a lie. It was going to make your health care more expensive. If you're like most Americans and your health insurance premium feels like a second mortgage and your sky-high deductible can even prevent you from going to the doctor and your sky-high co-pays can even keep you from going to the doctor, you need to talk to my friend Art Wilborn. Now, his website is myfamilyhealthplan.com. He's licensed in Arkansas and Texas, but if you're in one of the other 48 he can hook you up with someone who can help you, who can do the same thing he does in Arkansas and Texas. Art is a longtime fan of the Doc Washburn Show going back to 
the years that I did the show on local radio in Arkansas, and he understands our needs. And let me tell you something. Here's the great thing. The great thing, well, there, there, there are a number of great things about my family healthplan.com. Not just saving 30 to 50% on premiums. Not just having personalized health coverage with low to no deductible and no co-pays. Can you believe this in this day and age? Save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co-pays. But with myfamilyhealthplan.com, you get an insurance plan that doesn't force you to cover things that would conflict with, that would violate your deeply held religious beliefs. So go to the website, book a free consultation. Art Wilborn will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. Save money on your insurance at myfamilyhealthplan.com. All right, now, that having been said, that having been said, I don't... Uh, I don't mean to beat a dead horse here, but Philip Carl Salzman, professor emeritus of anthropology at McGill University and senior fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy, has a brilliant new article out over PJ Media called The Intentional Destabilization of America. And he says the attacks on America are not accidental nor the result of ignorance and stupidity. No, the attacks are intentional and strategic. The goal is the transformation of America, which would be made possible by the destruction of America's core institutions. This intention is stated explicitly by Joe Biden, who said in August of this year that his Build Back Better bill would transform America. Quote, Today, the House of Representatives has taken a significant step toward making a histor an historic investment that's going to transform America, unquote. Speaker Nancy Pelosi described Biden's Build Back Better bill as transformative and cause for celebration. In these remarks, Biden and Pelosi were repeating Obama's central promise in 08 that, quote, we are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America, unquote. Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat Somalia, what, Minnesota? Well, whatever. Member of the Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives explains why America must be transformed when she said, as long as our economy and political systems prioritize profit without considering who is profiting, who is being shut out, we will perpetuate this inequality. So we cannot stop at the criminal justice system. We must begin the work of dismantling the whole system of oppression wherever we find it. Now, what would we say of a foreign country, for example, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, 
carried out the following actions. Invaded through the American southern border with 2 million troops. Stopped fuel production, ending American self-sufficiency. Returning America to dependence on Middle Eastern and other countries that hate America while facilitating Russian fuel domination in Europe. Burnt and destroyed the downtown commercial sections of almost all American cities. Defunded and disbanded the police while releasing criminals from prison and refusing to incarcerate any criminals leading to major spike in violent crime. Then, if that were not sufficient, contrary to science, fire large numbers of unvaccinated police, firefighters, emergency medical workers, and hospital employees with natural immunity, the very people who were celebrated as heroes, heroes throughout 2020 but are now regarded as criminals. Granted illegal aliens $450,000 each of taxpayer money for their suffering and not, and not having been received by an honor guard upon their illegal entry. Flooded the American economy with vast amounts of counterfeit money printed without anything behind it, leading to galloping inflation, a type of regressive tax punishing the poor and middle class. Then used the fake money to pay people to stay home and out of the workforce, leading to the greatest labor crisis in American history. Claimed that the foundational documents of America, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, are null and void due to, you know, slavery. These are replaced by a regime in which male and white citizens are to be punished for, you know, slavery. And replaced by females and minorities of color, except for Asian Americans who have disgraced themselves by being too successful. Required schools to teach the white children that they're evil oppressors and children of color that they are forever victims. And likewise, that male children are brutal and toxic and females are victims. But schools will teach that there is a way out for toxic males and female victims by transitioning to trans females and trans males, which the schools secretly facilitate without informing any parents. Declare that children now belong to the government and parents have no say in their education. Any parents who speak up about their children's education are domestic terrorists and must be persecuted and suppressed by school boards, the Department of Justice, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Threatened to the Supreme Court with either endorsing far-left agendas or being canceled by court packing with far-left justices, declared the Supreme Court is no longer co-equal but subservient to Congress in the executive branches. Abandoned American citizens, residents, and allies and giving up America's strategic position in Afghanistan. What would we say if these things were done by a foreign power? We would say that America is in an all-out war. But all these things have been done or are being done by the Biden administration, the Democrat Party, which are at war with America and trying to destroy it totally. Why would they do that? The progressive caucus of the Democrat Party, which appears to be the ideological leader of the Democrats, looks to replace capitalism with socialism. Senator Bernie Sanders, one of the leading Democrat candidates for president 2016 and 2020, is a self-proclaimed socialist who sits as an independent but caucuses with the Democrat Party and a supporter of Cuba and Venezuela. Alexandria Occasional Cortex, 
sits as a Democrat but is a member of the Democrat Socialists. Others in the Progressive Caucus identify as socialists and anti-capitalists. Destabilizing America's institutions and undermining its constitutional government is a Democrat Party strategic path to socialism. Biden's Build Back Better legislation might more accurately be called the Build Government Bigger Plan, in which expanded government programs, entitlements, and giveaways make the population ever more dependent on the government. As the power of the government increases, the independence of citizens decreases, which is why in socialist societies, the population is subjects rather than citizens. The destabilization of America is used as an excuse to reform voting procedures so the Democrats can steal elections and guarantee their dominance. So the reality is not so much Democrat socialism, but democracy or socialism. And he concludes, let's go, Brandon. Uh, that is a great Philip Carl Salzman over at PJ Media. The article is entitled The Intentional Destabilization of America. I'll put it on my Facebook page here in a little bit. But I just felt the need to share it with you. Because again, again, I don't ever want you to say, hey, why didn't you warn us? Why didn't you tell us, Doc? So, um, Ted Cruz now has a bill that would block the feds, the states, and public schools from mandating COVID vaccines for kids. God bless him for that. Good luck getting it passed. There'll probably be some, some Republicans who won't vote for that. The same Republicans who uh, voted for that horrendous spending bill over the weekend. And we will get to that. We will get to that. The great Margot Cleveland over at thefederalist.com has an article today called Why Does Michigan Still Have 25,000 Dead People on Its Voter Rolls? Subtitled Further Investigation by a Nonprofit Law Firm revealed evidence indicating 334 individuals in Michigan had registered to vote after their deaths. Well, the question kind of answers itself, doesn't it? The question kind of answers itself. Now, in keeping with uh, Ted Cruz launching a bill to try to keep the feds, states, and schools from mandating vaccines, Here's a great governor of the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Oh, I got to turn it back up? Okay, sorry. Sorry. Look, nobody, no cop, no firefighter, no nurse, nobody should be losing their jobs because of these jabs. We have got to stand up for people and protect their jobs and protect their livelihoods. Amen, brother. Amen. Over at justinnews.com, Greg Piper, John Solomon's great news website. Experts rip CDC study claiming vax offers stronger protection than natural immunity. Yeah. CDC 
published an early release study last week that uses a highly curated population to purportedly show that mRNA vaccinated people have a much lower rate of reinfection by COVID-19 than naturally immune people, contradicting, contradicting a much larger Israeli study this summer. Guess who Terry Bradshaw is going to believe? The CDC study concludes all eligible persons should be vaccinated against COVID-19 as soon as possible, including unvaccinated persons previously infected with SARS-CoV-2. The study analyzed COVID-19-like illness hospitalizations among adults across nine states from January through September 2nd. Because public health authorities portrayed vaccination as the best way to avoid hospitalization, it's less likely that vaccinated people would seek hospitalization, thus hiding their breakthrough infections relative to the naturally immune. Attorney Jenin Yoon's whose new Civil Liberties Alliance files legal challenges against COVID vaccine mandates, tweeted that the study contradicts a meta-analysis touted by the CDC, which found no significant difference in protection between vaccine, vaccination and natural immunity. Immunologist Human Nurchasham, the medical expert for multiple challenges for the new Civil Liberties Alliance, Call the study another teleological piece of propaganda by the CDC because it excludes the Johnson Johnson vaccine and likely includes recovered people in the vaccinated group. Harvard Medical School epidemiologist Martin Koldarf tweeted that the study has a major statistical flaw, falsely portraying hospitalized respiratory patients as representative of the population, which renders the odds ratio wrong. Former New York Times journalist Alex Berenson argued the study is meaningless gibberish that would never have been published if the agency did not face huge political pressure to get people vaccinated. It's not even clear enough naturally immune people were hospitalized to reach statistical significance, according to Berenson, noting there's no unadjusted odds ratio. Just thought you might want to know. Now, now, again, we go back to the wonderful thefederalist.com and the great Rachel Bovard, their senior tech columnist and the senior director of policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute, and this article, how 31 Republicans just betrayed the country to reward illegal immigration, worsen inflation, and pay off Democrats' donors. And she says, at nearly midnight on Friday, 13 House Republicans gave Speaker Nancy Pelosi the votes she needed to pass the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill, colloquially known in D.C. as the BIF. In doing so, these House Republicans, among them two members of the House GOP leadership team, all but guaranteed House passage of Joe Biden's hotly partisan 
$2 trillion reconciliation bill, which represents the largest cradle-to-grave expansion of federal power since the New Deal. Over the National Review, Philip Klein called the move by these 13 Republicans political malpractice and a betrayal. He's right, particularly on the first, pro- on the first point. Republicans who supported the bill predictably justified their vote as one for roads and bridges. Pointing to the benefits that the bill's largest provisions, like the $47 billion in climate funding and the $66 billion for the failing Amtrak system provided without any reform, will ostensibly bring to their districts. As Representative Don Bacon, Republican Nebraska, told TheHill.com, he said, I thought it was good for our district. I thought it was good for our country. Meanwhile, left-of-center commentator Andrew Sullivan huffed about the fanatical tribalism being applied to a bill about infrastructure. That this bill was a bill solely focused on infrastructure may have been true at the bill's conception, but for months, a single and unavoidable political reality has been obvious. The substance of the bill hardly mattered. Rather, the infrastructure bill was but a, a chit, a chess piece, enforcing through passage of the larger, hotly partisan reconciliation legislation. Their fates were linked. One would not pass without the other. This was a choice made very clearly and very openly by congressional Democrats. In June, Pelosi stated, there ain't going to be no bipartisan bill unless we have a reconciliation bill. A sentiment she reiterated in October when she confirmed the bipartisan infrastructure bill will pass once we have agreement on the reconciliation bill. House progressives made the linkage of the two bills central to their strategy of leveraging concessions in the reconciliation legislation, refusing to provide votes for the BIF until the reconciliation demands were met. Six of them ended up refusing to support passage of the BIF, paving the way for House Republicans to be the deciding votes. Even Joe Biden tied the fate of the infrastructure legislation to the reconciliation bill. He did so explicitly in June, then said he really didn't mean it after Senate Republicans expressed outrage within 18 of them voted to pass the bill in August anyway, and then linked them again in October when he told House Democrats that infrastructure ain't going to happen until we reach an agreement on the next piece of legislation, reconciliation, the infrastructure bill. So to claim that a vote for the infrastructure legislation was merely a vote for roads and bridges devoid of any other major political context, is just willfully ignorant of the obvious and openly stated politics at work. A vote for the infrastructure bill was very clearly a vote for the reconciliation legislation. The inability to understand this reality raises not only questions of basic political acumen, but of the ability of House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy's, pardon me, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's leadership team to hold their conference together on consequential votes. It really is worth unpacking a few of the provisions in the reconciliation bill that this group of Republicans will help make possible. Among them are 
a 10-year amnesty for illegal immigrants, which includes work permits and driver's licenses, and cannot be undone by future administrations for a decade. It also provides millions of dollars in funding for the IRS to enforce the Biden administration's plan to review every bank account with $10,000 a year in it. It expands and shores up provisions of Obamacare. It eliminates the statutory cap on employment visas, effectively allowing big tech companies and other mega corporations to prioritize hiring foreign workers over American workers. It facilitates enforcement of Biden's vaccine mandate by, mandate by increasing OSHA penalties on businesses of up to $700,000 per violation and provides billions in funding for the Department of Labor to increase enforcement. It mandates taxpayer coverage of abortion, leaving the long-agreed-upon Hyde Amendment out of the bill. It provides half a trillion dollars in climate spending including clean energy tax credits to subsidize solar, electric vehicles, and clean energy production, as well as federal spending on clean energy technology and manufacturing, all while limiting domestic energy production, thereby increasing the dependence on Russia and China. It provides roughly $400 billion for expanded government child care and universal pre-K which pumps millions into failed Head Start programs, excludes support for families who prefer at-home child care arrangements, and by requiring that preschool teachers have a college degree will reduce the availability of child care options. And a host of new taxes and a giant tax cut for the rich. You got that? They're talking about raising taxes on the rich? No, 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 no. No. It's a giant tax cut for the rich by including a repeal on the cap for the state and local tax deductions. Democrats will provide a $30 billion net direct tax cut on the top 5% of earners, largely in blue states where the state and local taxes are much higher. So the Build Back Better Reconciliation legislation is a bill that transforms the role of the state in every aspect of an individual's life while expanding key Democrat priorities like amnesty, abortion, cheap foreign labor, a dysfunctional health care system, and invasions of financial privacy. And consideration of the bill in the House wasn't made possible by the Democrats in the majority, but by House Republicans. There are those like Andrew Sullivan who still bemoan that political politicization Pardon me, the political polarization has taken over even relatively popular policies like infrastructure, but politicizing the infrastructure bill was a clear and unambiguous choice Democrats made when they linked the two bills. To expect most Republicans to be as tin-eared and politically naive or like Adam Kinzinger is openly tied to Democrat priorities as a group of 13 is ridiculous. It's asking them to act against their own self-interest. Democrats drafted a partisan reconciliation bill with no Republican input, full of provisions they knew Republicans wouldn't support, and then hijacked an otherwise bipartisan bill to ensure passage of its much more expansive and partisan cousin. This was a specific choice Democrats made, and Republicans are not responsible for it, nor should they be expected to vote for a bill that is the stated gateway to related legislation with which they profoundly disagree. Regardless, 
The infrastructure bill now goes to Biden's desk. 18 Republican senators helped pass it in August, and so did 13 House Republicans for a total of 31, knowing full well. They were also voting on the amnesty-filled, abortion-funding, financially-snooping, cheap labor-loving reconciliation bill gave it the required boost. Betrayal, as Klein noted over the National Review, is not too strong a term. Now, that is Rachel Bovard over the Federalists. The article is entitled How 31 Republicans Just Betrayed the Country to Reward Illegal Immigration, Worsen Inflation, and Pay Off Democrat Donors. And, and, and I think... I think it's only fitting and right that I tell you who these people are, you know? First of all, first of all, the folks back on August 8th, the Republicans who voted for this monstrosity In, uh, in the U.S. Senate. Roy Blunt, Republican of Missouri. And we have uh, some listeners in Missouri, that's for sure. Richard Burr, Republican, North Carolina. Well, we, have, we have listeners in, in all these states. Shelley Capito, Republican, West Virginia. Bill Cassidy, Republican, Louisiana. Susan Collins, Republican, Maine. I think that's the only state we're not in yet, Maine. John Corner, Republican, Texas. Kramer, North Dakota. Crapo, Idaho. Fisher, Nebraska. Hoven, North Dakota. The Turtle, Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, the majority leader, voted for this. Lisa Murkowski, Republican of Arkansas. Pardon me. What am I doing here? I'm in Arkansas. There's no way Lisa Murkowski is Republican of Arkansas. I'm trying to do too many things at once. Lisa Murkowski, Republican of Alaska. I apologize to all my Arkansas listeners. Rob Portman, Republican of Ohio. James Risch, Republican of Idaho. So both your Idaho senators voted for this mess. Of course, Mitt Romney, Utah. Sullivan, Alaska. Tom Tillis, North Carolina. And, and Roger Wicker, Missouri. Pardon me, Mississippi, Mississippi. So... Here's the deal. We keep on voting to put these people back in, right? We keep on voting to put these people back in, and they keep on stabbing us in the back. I don't know how many of these guys are up for re-election next year, but they need to be primaried. Now, in the House, in the House, they're up for re-election every two years. 
So how many Republicans in the House voted to stab us all in the back with this monstrosity 13? And they are Don Bacon of Nebraska and Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania. And Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio. Andrew Garbarino of New York. John Katko of New York. Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. Nicole Maliotakis of New York. We have a lot of New York listeners. You guys need to know about this. David McKinley, West Virginia. Tom Reed of New York. Chris Smith of New Jersey. I thought he was supposed to be a pro-lifer. Fred Upton. Michigan. Jeff Van Drew, New Jersey. I think he's still a Democrat. And Don Young of Alaska, the longest-serving member in the, in the House. All these guys voted to stab us in the back and put trillions more debt on top of our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren. And again, to make it easier for the Biden regime to come down on us, the IRS gets to review every bank account that has $10,000 in it over the course of a year? Every one of these people should be primaried into oblivion. Every cotton-picking one of them. It's an outrage. It's an absolute outrage. All right. Now, this is interesting. Former Bush appointee Matt Meyer calls on former President George W. Bush to speak out clearly and strongly against Democrats' Russia collusion hoax, which so grievously damaged the country. Uh, when do you think that's going to happen? Matt Meyer, former senior official, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, presidency of George W. Bush. When do you think it's going to happen? Maybe the uh, maybe the twelfth of never. Yeah. See, Bush is part of the uh, the Uniparty, right? Part of the Uniparty. He likes Clinton. He likes Obama. Okay? So nobody thinks that he's ever going to speak out against the Russia collusion hoax. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Anyway, just thought I'd share that with you.
<clears throat> so let me ask you this. The great Steve Dace. Is he at the, the blaze of the Daily Wire? I forget. Anyway, he says, whoever's running the Biden White House, the Democrat Party, knows their awful numbers even better than we do, and yet there is no conciliatory moderation away from the tyranny causing them. Why? Because this is no longer a mere political party, but a spirit-of-the-age cult. A mere political party would stick their fingers into the wind, realizing they're heading down to an election oblivion, an attempt to deflect from that, but a cult doubles down and views such collective opposition as confirmation of its special knowledge slash mission being uniquely special. Thus, the cult members themselves are uniquely special and therefore uniquely called to impose their will on you. I think he's got something there. Now, Jesse Kelly, nationally syndicated talk show host out of Houston, says, in response to Steve Dace, Susan Rice and Ron Klain run the White House. They are both committed communists, and neither of them are worried about Biden getting a second term. They'll destroy as much as they can until he's gone, and then they will both be clearing a million dollars a year in media and or academia. All right? Now, Every once in a while, every once in a while, somebody comes on Tater's show. Right? <laughs> Brian Stelter, who has hardly any audience left and can't figure out why. Over the weekend, he had uh, Bacha Ungar Sargon. Deputy Opinion Editor at Newsweek. So Newsweek has some conservatives now. Anyway, she handed Tater's gluteus maximus to him, and there are a number of responses in which she said, hmm, because he had nothing. It went like this. How does, how does what you're describing as bad news, uh, how did it shape election results on Tuesday? So my, I felt that uh, Tuesday was a really good uh, advertisement for my book because my book is arguing that a lot of this conversation around wokeness is actually about class. Hmm. We are hiding a class divide in America. We are hiding the just disgusting levels of income inequality in America. We are hiding the total dispossession of the working class of all races by focusing on a very highly specialized academic language around race. Hmm. And I, I think what happened, you know, Glenn Youngkin's victory was a perfect example of this. The media's response to Youngkin's victory is literally the reason that he won, right? How did oh, they respond? There's 100 medias, 100 reactions. You're, you're pretty, pretty overly generalizing, I think. Let me, let me get more specific okay. for you, okay? Because right. I, I have to say, I have to admit, having watched CNN all week, there's been a lot of very, very, very good genuflection on this front. Um, but what happened right after the election was you saw host after host after host on MSNBC saying, oh, this is a victory for white supremacy, right? White supremacy wins again. Race Racism wins again when, you know, the lieutenant governor that Youngkin won with will be the first black woman to hold that job. When Glenn Youngkin managed to flip majority black districts, when he managed to get between 40 and 
percent of Latino voters. Are all of those people white supremacists? Of course they're not. They're people who are worried about, number one, the economy, right? And number two, schooling. And it seems to me it is such a self-own to tell people who are worried about the economy that that is white supremacy, right? Mm. You are essentially criminalizing the view. Well, I guess, I guess somehow or another I cut her off. I, I, I didn't mean to. But um, see, we're right, right at the end. All of these pundits being like, these people don't know what critical race theory is. That is not um, a political statement. That is a class statement. Hmm. They are not educated enough to be opposed to critical race theory. How dare they oppose it? There you go. That was the rest of it. That was the rest of it. Look, um, she had a good point. She had a good point about MSNBC freaking out. We've got a compilation of a guy they like to have on a lot, a guy named Michael Eric Dyson, saying racist things about black people who disagree with him. And this is um, the way things roll over at MSNBC. This is white supremacy by ventriloquism. A black mouth is moving, but white racist ideals are are flowing from Kanye West's mouth. Kanye West is engaging in one of the most nefarious practices yet. A black body and brain are the warehouse for the articulation and expression of anti-black sentiments that have been chin-checked by people with far more rigorous credentials. The problem is here, they they want white supremacy by ventriloquist effect. There is a black mouth moving, but a white idea through the running on the runway of the tongue of a figure who justifies and legitimates uh, the white supremacist practices. Wait, running on the tongue of the runway of a what? He's a racist. He's a racist. If you're black and you disagree with him politically, then... He's going to say, you're a ventriloquist dummy for the white man. When actually, you want to know the truth about it. He's a ventriloquist dummy for the white supremacist who's in the Oval Office right now. Know what I'm saying? I quote the great... Dr. Alveda King, niece of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said Planned Parenthood accomplished what the KKK could never have dreamt of. Was it like something like 20 million black babies dead from abortion? The Klan couldn't have dreamt of that. And that is the party that Michael Eric Dyson goes out and carries water for on the channel that carries water for white supremacy, MSNBC. You're not supposed to say that. I don't care. I don't care. Have I now become your enemy for speaking the truth to you? That's a verse out of the Bible, you know. How, how? Let me say it again. Have I now become your enemy for speaking the truth to you? 
That's what we're going to keep doing here on the Doc Washburn Show. You know what I'm saying? That is what we're going to keep doing here. Now, I need to get into a little bit more what's going on with John Durham. And I don't even think I talked about it until like April uh, episode 18 or 19 because we had so much hope for Durham last year. And he was not looking at any kind of a time schedule, any kind of a deadline. This guy, he has an immaculate track record of getting to the truth of the matter. And so now there's some things are coming down. Um, I held off for quite a while, for a few weeks, into this live stream slash podcast. But when somebody as sharp as Margot Cleveland over the Federalist recommends an article by people as sharp as Jeff Carlson and Hans Monkey over the epictimes.com to explain what's going on with Durham, then I got to take a look at it. Durham indictment of Danchenko reveals role of Clinton advisor in dossier creation. Hello. Igor Danchenko, the primary source for Christopher Steele's dossier, has been indicted on a five-count charge of making false statements to the FBI in the Eastern District of Virginia. The indictment and arrest of Danchenko was confirmed in a statement issued by the Office of Special Counsel John Durham, who noted this his investigation is ongoing. Danchenko is the third person to be arrested as part of John Durham's ongoing probe into the origins of the FBI's investigation into alleged ties between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. Former FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith was convicted of doctoring a document in relation to the FBI obtaining a FISA warrant on Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. Former Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman pleaded not guilty last year to a charge, pardon me, last month to a charge of lying to the FBI while allegedly attempting to induce the FBI to investigate a false Russia conspiracy theory. Danchenko's indictment appears to be the most significant development in the Durham investigation to date. As Christopher Steele's primary subsource, Danchenko was ostensibly responsible for most of the content within Steele's dossier. The dossier was later used to obtain the FISA warrant on Carter Page. Steele's dossier was commissioned by opposition research firm Fusion GPS on behalf of the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. A summary of the dossier was also attached to the January 2017th intelligence community assessment that blamed Russia for interfering in the 2016 election to help then-candidate Donald Trump. That assessment played a key role in efforts to investigate Trump, culminating in the appointment of special counsel Robert Mueller. Danchenko is charged with lying to the FBI about two 
specific facts. Count one of John Durham's indictment relates to denials from Danchenko to FBI agents that he had spoken with PR Executive One, now identified as Charles Dolan, about any material contained in Christopher Steele's dossier. As John Durham's indictment lays out, Charles Dolan, described as a longtime participant in Democrat Party politics, was actually Danchenko's source for many of the allegations within Christopher Steele's dossier. Dolan's role in the creation of the dossier was not known publicly until Thursday. Dolan's identity as PR Executive One has been confirmed through a brief statement from his lawyer, who also noted Dolan was a witness in John Durham's ongoing case. It gets deeper. Igor Danchenko, who had worked at the left-leaning think tank Brookings Institute from 2005 to 2010, was introduced to Dolan in February 2016 by another employee at the Brookings Institute, Fiona Hill, who had previously introduced Danchenko to Steele in late 2010. If that name sounds familiar, hang on. Following this introduction, Danchenko began working for Steele in 2011. Fiona Hill would later become known to the public in 2019 during her testimony at the impeachment hearings of then-President Trump. John Durham notes in the indictment that Dolan's role was highly relevant and material to the FBI's review of Christopher Steele's allegations because Dolan maintained pre-existing and ongoing relationships with numerous persons named in Christopher Steele's dossier. Additionally, as John Durham's indictment notes, allegations sourced to Dolan by Danchenko formed the basis of a dossier report that in turn underpinned the FISA applications made by the FBI on Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. Durham repeatedly notes that if Danchenko had not lied to the FBI regarding Dolan's role, the FBI might have taken further investigative steps, including interviewing Dolan. While this assertion may be accurate, it also appears the FBI failed repeatedly to investigate specific details or events that could have been easily verified or disproven. Dolan and the Clintons have a lengthy history that dates back to the 1990s. In 2008, Dolan served as an advisor to then-Senator Clinton's presidential campaign, and he actively campaigned on behalf of Hillary's 2016 presidential campaign. From 2006 to 2014, Dolan handled PR for the Russian government and a state-owned energy firm. According to John Durham, Dolan maintained relationships with then-Russian ambassador to the United States and the head of the Russian embassy's economic section in Washington. As Durham notes, both men would later appear by name in Christopher Steele's dossier. Durham's indictment details Dolan's communications with a number of high-level Russian officials. It took place at the same time Hillary Clinton was accusing Trump of communicating with the Kremlin. They, all, they always accuse you of what they're doing, right? Dolan's ongoing work for Russia makes it likely he should have been required to register with the Department of Justice under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, but Durham's indictment does not address this matter. Not yet. 
information from Dolan was featured in an August 22, 2016 dossier report from Christopher Steele that ostensibly described the reasons behind the departure of Paul Manafort from the Trump campaign. Dolan told Danchenko he had received this information from a GOP friend, but Dolan later acknowledged to the FBI he had fabricated the meeting and instead relayed information he had obtained from public reporting. It also appears Dolan may have played a role, unknowingly or otherwise, in some of the more salacious aspects of Christopher Steele's dossier in what was described as a June 2016 planning trip Dolan actually stayed at a hotel in Moscow. As John Durham's indictment notes, Dolan was given a tour of the hotel's presidential suite and met with a manager and other staff of the hotel. During the tour, it was mentioned to Dolan that Trump had stayed in the presidential suite, but Durham notes that Dolan claims there was no mention of any sexual or salacious activity. So, Allegations of a so-called P-tape made at the hotel's presidential suite during Trump's stay were contained in Steele's June 20th, 2016 report. Christopher Steele's dossier falsely attributed the story to American businessman Sergey Millian, but Igor Danchenko later claimed that he had characterized the alleged activity to Christopher Steele as rumor and speculation. Danchenko, who initially told the FBI he was at the hotel in June with Dolan, later admitted that he had not visited the hotel until October 2016. John Durham also includes an email from Dolan that appears to reference former U.K. ambassador to Russia, Sir Andrew Wood. In an email discussing Christopher Steele, Dolan writes that he is also in conversation with former British ambassador who knows Steele. Wood famously brought the Steele dossier to the attention of then-Senator John McCain at a meeting in November 2016 during a private meeting in Nova, Nova Scotia, Canada. McCain sent an associate, David Kramer, to London to meet with Christopher Steele. November 28, 2016, Kramer gave a copy of Christopher Steele's dossier to McCain, who in turn provided a copy of the dossier to then-FBI Director James Comey, December 9, 2016. All the charges against Danchenko, center around statements that he made in eastern Virginia, likely at his home. So that's why he's indicted there. John Durham might be strategically inclined to focus on these particular charges as they allow him to file outside of Democrat-leaning D.C. courts. The geographic focus of the indictment may also explain why some of the material claims made in the dossier were either not discussed or mentioned only in passing in the indictment. Durham's indictment notes a number of other meetings, conversations, and emails between Dolan and Danchenko, showing that Dolan passed along other information also used in Steele's dossier. Durham's indictment also reveals Dolan may have provided some assistance to Danchenko. Durham notes that on June 10, 2016, Dolan emailed an acquaintance regarding efforts to assist Danchenko in obtaining a U.S. visa, stating that Danchenko, quote, owes me as his visa is being held up and I'm having a word with the ambassador, unquote. Additionally, Dolan appears to have promised another alleged dossier source, Olga Galkina, a position in the Clinton State Department, 
If Hillary was to win the 2016 presidential election, which they all thought she would, Galkina cited in John Durham's indictment as telling associates Dolan would, quote, take me to the State Department if Hillary wins, unquote. The implication behind Galkina's claim is that Dolan was promised a role in Clinton's administration himself. Durham also describes how Danchenko recommended Dolan and his PR firm to Olga Galkina, who at the time was serving as Alexei Gubarov's personal secretary. Gubarov, a Russian internet entrepreneur, ultimately hired Dolan as, as his PR advisor. Strangely, Gubarov would end up being falsely accused in Christopher Steele's dossier of working with Russian hackers to infiltrate the DNC's computer systems. When Gubarov later sued Fusion GPS for defamation, Dolan actually served as Gubarov's spokesman. Man, 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 man. What a wicked web we weave when first we practice to deceive. The remaining four charges laid out in John Durham's indictment of Danchenko relate to Sergei Millian, an American national of Belarus descent. Many of the details behind these charges were already known to those who have been investigating the Russian collusion stories. John Durham's indictment alleges Danchenko lied to the FBI on four separate occasions, each time claiming he had had a phone conversation in the summer of 2016 with someone he believed to have been Million. For his part, Million has always stated he never met Danchenko in person or by phone. Million's assertions are emphatically proven in Durham's Indictment of Dan- Danchenko, where it's repeatedly stated Danchenko never spoke to Chamber President One, which is Million. Million differed from all of Christopher Steele's other purported sources and that he had no actual contact with anyone within Christopher Steele's orbit, including Danchenko. Steele has demonstrated a preference for his targets to be physically present with his operatives. And indeed, Christopher Steele told the FBI he believed Danchenko had met with Million on two or three separate occasions. The allegations attributed to Million are crucial to the Christopher Steele dossier. Steele used Million as the supposed source for his allegations of what he called a well-developed conspiracy of cooperation between Donald J. Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin, which was foundational to the Trump-Russia collusion narrative. Christopher Steele further attributed Sergey Millian as a source for allegations regarding secret communications between Russian Alpha Bank and Trump. Also ascribed to Millian were the WikiLeaks email dump and the salacious P-tape story, all from a person whom neither Christopher Steele nor Igor Danchenko had ever met or spoken to. Danchenko admitted to the FBI that his first outreach to Millian was on July 22, 2016, via email, which is cited in John Durham's indictment. But by this point, Christopher Steele, apparently believing Danchenko had actually met Million, had already published two reports in his dossier that attributed specific allegations to Sergey Million. As Danchenko admitted to the FBI in a November 2017 follow-up interview, Christopher Steele erroneously believed that there had been in-person meetings between Danchenko and Million, a belief which... Danchenko did not correct. It's unlikely that Steele would have placed so much emphasis on Sergey Million as a major source without a plausible scenario for how these stories were obtained. Although Steele named Million as one of his sources to the media, State Department officials, and the FBI, he was more guarded when it came to his other alleged sources. 
Their identities were only uncovered last year after Internet sleuths extrapolated information from Danchenko's interview notes with the FBI. These individuals, friends and acquaintances of Danchenko, did not have any pertinent information about Putin's thoughts or intentions, nor were they in a position to obtain any such information. All six of these alleged sources have recently come forward and signed affidavits denying having ever told Christopher Steele or Igor Danchenko anything in relation to the dossier. While some commentators, including ex-FBI agent Peter Strzok, are now suggesting that the FBI was duped by Danchenko, that is categorically not the case. Durham's revelations with respect to Sergey Millian were known to the FBI by late January 2017, as they knew that Christopher Steele had attributed information in early dossier reports to Christopher Millian. Pardon me, as they knew that Christopher Steele had attributed information in early dossier reports to Sergey Millian. At the same time, the FBI also knew Danchenko had not yet reached out to Millian at that point. Similarly, Millian's alleged phone call could have been easily investigated and shown to have been fabricated by Danchenko. However, instead of taking these simple investigative steps, the FBI forged on with their investigation, a process that tied up the Trump administration for the next three years. One important question remains. When Danchenko was interviewed by the FBI, January 2017, he was given what is known as a queen for a day immunity deal which gave him the opportunity to walk away from the entire dossier affair, provided he told the FBI the truth. Danchenko had every incentive to tell the FBI the truth, but for reasons that remain unknown, he chose not to do so. Oh, my goodness. That is the great Jeff Carlson and the great Hans Monkey over the epictimes.com. Their new article, Durham Indictment of Danchenko Reveals Role of Clinton Advisor in Dossier Creation. So, um, this guy, this Dolan guy, who's been tight with the Clintons since the 90s, um, Pray for his safety. You'd hate to see him be the victim of another Arkansas. And uh, my listeners in Arkansas know what Arkansas is. So is Dolan flipped on Hillary? Now again, 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 look, I understand the natural, the natural reaction to be, Doc, nothing's going to happen. I get it. I get it. I understand. Nothing's going to happen. But I'm surprised that even the people who have been indicted have been indicted, okay? And when I asked my friend Andy McCarthy about it, former federal prosecutor, he said, look, uh, Biden hates Hillary. He doesn't care. His his." Justice Department doesn't care if they go after Hillary. But, but Obama and Biden were also neck deep in this whole thing themselves. There was a meeting of the White House, January 5th, 2017. Obama, Biden, Brennan, Comey, 
like Susan Rice, I can't remember who else was there, specifically about how to take down Trump, the duly elected president of the United States. Right? So, I mean, it, uh, I don't know. It, it remains to be seen where this whole thing's going. Let me just put it that way. Now, we've got huge news here. The Wall Street Journal. COVID-19 vaccines and myocarditis link probed by researchers. Have you heard about this anywhere? Are they talking about this in the news anywhere? So Peter Loftus has this over the Wall Street Journal. Um, sorry, I got to get a little bit of water. I'll tell you what, let me, let me, let me do this real quick. Let me do this real quick, and then we'll uh, we'll share with you what the uh, Wall Street Journal has real quick. You're listening to The Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download to your smartphone. The show is also available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609-3711. All right, thank you. Now, let's uh, see what the Wall Street Journal has to say here. As U.S. health authorities expand use of the leading COVID-19 vaccines, researchers investigating heart-related risks linked to the shots are exploring several emerging theories including one centered on the spike po- the spike protein made in response to vaccination. Researchers aren't certain why the messenger RNA vaccines, one from Pfizer and partner BioNTech, and the other from Moderna, are likely causing the inflammatory heart conditions, myocarditis and pericarditis, in a small number of cases. Some theories center on the type of spike protein that a person makes in response to the mRNA vaccines. The mRNA itself or other components of the vaccines, researchers say, could also be setting off certain inflammatory responses in some people. One new theory under examination, improper injections of the vaccine directly into a vein, which sends the vaccine to heart muscle. To find answers, some doctors and scientists are running tests and lab dishes and examining and examining heart tissue samples from people who developed myocarditis or pericarditis after getting vaccinated. Myocarditis describes inflammation of the heart muscle, where while pericarditis refers to inflammation of the sac surrounding the muscle. COVID-19 itself can cause both conditions. They have also been reported in a smaller number of people who got an mRNA vaccine, most commonly in men under 30 years and adolescent males. Yeah, so let's just go ahead and jab the five-year-olds and see how many of them get myocarditis or pericarditis. 
Yeah, why don't we do that? Just amazing to me. Just amazing to me. Wow, 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 wow. Because, because there's a lot more going on here. A lot more going on here than they want you to know. The vaccine adverse events um, reporting system only has what people voluntarily report. There's, there's no law saying you have to report COVID deaths or from people who already gotten vaccinated or adverse reactions to the vaccine. No, none of that. None of that. It's not there, man. So Wall Street Journal says, hey, you know, they're looking into it, but it's a small number. It's a small number. We, uh, we don't know how small the number is, you know. But I tell you one thing, we've seen so many instances of people being so, so regretful about making the decision to get the jab or, or having a young person in the family who got the jab. And you don't think they're going to be regrets when they start vaccinating five-year-olds with this stuff? Again, Jesse Kelly, national talk show host out of Texas, says, I'm just glad they're looking into this before there's a huge push for people to take it. Think how horrid it would be if we just forced the thing on hundreds of millions of people and it turns out to be harmful. Whew. Wow, that'd be really bad. Now, I appreciate Brother Kelly's sense of humor. He's right. He's right, you know. I mean, <clears throat> let me let me just share this with you over the NOQ report from uh, Toby Rogers, PhD. Risk of death for kids aged 5 through 11 from the, quote, vaccines, unquote, is exponentially higher than COVID itself. And the editor here says the article by Toby Rogers dives into as much of the statistical data that he'd get his hands on while most of the data has been suppressed. There's still plenty available that all points to indisputable truth. Children age 5 through 11 have a much higher risk of dying from the COVID-19 vaccines than they do from the coronavirus itself. This report will shock those who bought into the government's push to vaccinate all school-aged ch children. Hey, you listen, Terry Bradshaw? It will likely even shock many who are against the jabs. How evil must the machinations of our own government be for them to take unambiguous data that says don't jab the kids and bury it away from prying eyes? How oblivious to the lies must parents be to willfully allow 
their children to take these drugs when COVID-19 represents an infinitesimal risk to them. I strongly recommend reading the entire article, but if you're in a hurry and you need a single shock statistic to share, it's this. For every one child saved by the shot, another 117 will be killed by the shot. What we've seen so far is there is an inverse correlation between the risks of COVID-19 and risks of the so-called vaccines. The disease targets the elderly and becomes progressively less dangerous the younger the infected are. The injections are the opposite. The younger the recipients of the jabs, the higher their risk is of having adverse reactions, including death from the injections themselves. Then he says, I'll let Toby explain further. He does a fine job of taking convoluted data and deciphering it for the layman. Read carefully and be ready to inform parents of the risk-benefit aspects of injecting their children with experimental drugs for which we have zero data regarding the long-term effects. But as we know, the short-term effects are already devastating enough for us to be very concerned. All right, so here, here's the Toby Rogers PhD says, what is the number needed to vaccinate to prevent a single COVID-19 fatality in kids 5 to 11 based on the Pfizer emergency use authorization application? And what are the risks that go along with injecting that many kids? He says, a funny thing happened this afternoon. Not funny as in ha-ha, more like funny as in, oh, that's how the FDA rigs the process. He says, I was reading the CDC's Guidance for Health Economic Studies presented to the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices 2019 update, and I realized that the FDA's woeful risk-benefit analysis in connection with Pfizer's EUA application, in other words, emergency use authorization, to jab children ages 5 to 11 violates many of the principles of the CDC's guidance document. The CDC guidance document describes 21 things that every health economic study in connection with vaccines must do, and the FDA risk-benefit analysis violated at least half of them. He says, today, I want to focus on a single factor, the number needed to vaccinate. In four separate places, the CDC guidance document mentions the importance of coming up with a number needed to vaccinate. I did not recall seeing a number needed to vaccinate in the FDA risk-benefit document, so I checked the FDA's risk-benefit analysis again, and sure enough, there was no mention of it. Because the FDA failed to provide a number needed to vaccinate, I'll attempt to provide it here. Okay, this is too long and drawn out, but I would recommend you take a look at it at your leisure As Bobby Kennedy explains, Pfizer's clinical trial in adults showed alarming increases in all-cause mortality in the vaccinated. And former New York Times investigative reporter Alex Berenson also wrote about the bad outcomes for the vaccinated in the Pfizer clinical trial in adults. And he links to all this stuff. He links to all this stuff. Berenson received a lifetime ban from Twitter, by the way, for posting Pfizer's own clinical trial data. Pfizer learned their lesson with the adult trial, and so when they conducted a trial of their mRNA vaccine in children ages 5 to 11, they intentionally made it too small 
only 2,300 participants, and two short only followed up for two months in order to hide harms. So, we're being played. Just so you know, just so you know, we are being played. There's no way around it. And um, I said it before, I'll say it again. And, you know, I even said this on my old uh, local talk radio show in Little Rock, Arkansas, a few days before they fired me. Um, I think one of the reasons there is so much push for people to be vaccinated is they don't want a control group when it becomes really obvious how badly the vaccines are affecting affecting people. <clears throat> they don't want a control group. You know? They don't want a group of unvaccinated folks who can say, hey, we're fine. We're going on with our lives. They just, they, they, they don't, they don't want that. They don't want to control you. And again, I always go back to what the World Economic Forum said late last year. They said, 2030, the year 2030, you won't own anything and you won't have any privacy, but you'll be much happier. Much happier. All right. So let me let me ask something. Um, the governor of California, <clears throat> Gavin Newsom, got his booster shot. Was it twelve? Twelve days ago, right? canceled every public event since then. Where is he? Why hasn't he been seen? He's the, uh, he's the governor of one of the biggest states in the country. Why why is why is nobody asking about this? That's what I want to know. Jen Saki got uh her booster shot, what was it? Um five or six days ago, she hasn't been seen, heard of since. What's, uh, what's up with that? And why is the media not asking about this? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it kind of makes you wonder 
if they've had uh, some sort of negative reaction. I'm just asking, you know, because uh, I'm not a journalist. I'm just a recovering DJ impersonating a talk show host. But since real journalists aren't asking, I figured I probably should. You know, something uh, something's really wrong here. I know, I know, I know. You're saying, Doc, I'm going to nominate you for a Nobel Prize for understatement, but um, can you just disappear if you're the governor of a state as big as California, just disappear for 12 days? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. So Glenn Beck interviewed uh, Darren Beatty from Revolver News. Hope I can get him on my podcast at some point. But he, he interviewed him. And Glenn said the FBI has arrested grandmas who were at the Capitol on January 6th. But why is it ignoring people like Ray Epps, who was caught on video multiple times trying to incite a riot? And so he talks to Darren Beatty over at uh, his podcast. My buddy Randy Man, pardon me, my buddy Party Man Randy over on Twitter responds. He says, once it's proven that Ray Epps is a Fed, that will mean that the government manufactured a pretext to go to literal war with its own citizens on January 6th. What happens then? You know, because... January 6th at the, at the Capitol was, it was a setup by the feds, you know? If you don't know who Ray Epps is, I recommend you go to the Revolver News website and you also do some digging around. Google probably doesn't want you to know. Google probably doesn't want you to know. So you might want to use DuckDuckGo, something like that. Um, a little bit more on this uh, deal with uh, injecting five-year-olds with an experimental drug. Uh, Dr. Kelly Victory over there on Twitter says, the FDA acknowledges that they predict more hospitalizations from myocarditis resulting from COVID-19 vaccines in 5 through 11-year-olds than from COVID itself. Then they conclude that the shots may still outweigh the risks. Think about that. And she's, she links the FDA exactly what they say here. FDA conducted a quantitative Benefit-risk analysis to evaluate predicted numbers of symptomatic COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, ICU emissions, and deaths that would be prevented per million fully vaccinated children 5 to 11 years of age over a six-month period as compared with predicted numbers of vaccine-associated excess myocarditis cases, hospitalizations, ICU emissions, and deaths per million fully vaccinated children 5 to 11 years of age. The model conservatively assumed 
that the risk of myocarditis or pericarditis associated with the uh, 10 is that milligram dose in children, 5 to 11 years of age, would be the same as estimate. It goes on and on and on. But the, the point is, the point is, they predict more hospitalizations from myocarditis resulting from COVID-19 vaccines in 5 to 11-year-olds than from COVID itself. You got all these sheep out there saying, hey, can't wait to get my five-year-old the jab. In case I didn't, uh, in case I didn't slam his lack of integrity, in case I didn't slam his ignorance enough, Terry Bradshaw is a sheep. Terry Bradshaw is a sheep. By the way, speaking of uh, Newsom, the great Ryan Savidra, reporter over at Daily Wire. Last night said Gavin Newsom's wife just deleted this tweet, which comes as her husband has been out of public view for going on two weeks. She had tweeted, it's funny how certain folks can't handle truth. When someone cancels something, maybe they're just in the office working. Maybe in their free time, they're at home with their family at their kids' sports matches or dining out with their wife. Please stop hating and get a life. I wonder why she deleted that. Laura Logan. The great investigative reporter who was almost killed in Tahrir Square, Cairo, Egypt, during the Arab Spring, who has my undying respect for speaking the truth and not caring where the chips fall. She links to an article. Pfizer has large research and development facility in Wuhan, China. Pfizer employed members of the Chinese Communist Party According to a data leak, Pfizer three-month revenue from the COVID vaccine was three and a half billion. How about them apples? How about that? So Jack Posobiec, senior editor, human events, former Navy intel officer, China analyst, posts a, uh, a chart that shows pericarditis symptoms and myocarditis symptoms all of a sudden going through the roof here recently, just going through the roof, up and up and up. And he says, nothing to see here. And Raheem Kassam, editor-in-chief of the National Pulse, co-founder of The War Room, says, I literally remember the day I talked about vaccine passports and mRNA gene therapies for the first time nearly two years ago now. It was called a conspiracy theorist. Now they're literally just killing people with impunity. And of course, Twitter says this tweet is misleading. But it's not misleading. You know, it's not misleading. How many people do you know that went to the hospital for covid and they wouldn't give them anything. Put them in a bed, put them on a vent, and kill them. Hydroxychloroquine, oh, no, 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 no. Ivermectin, well, no, because the great famed medical analyst Terry Bradshaw said the daggum ivermectin is a daggum horse dewormer. 
They kill them. Mind calling antibodies? Oh, I'm sorry. You don't qualify for that. We're going to withhold that. Get some extra money from you dying. Where did where did uh, Bradshaw get his medical degree? Was it Louisiana Tech? You know, I got to tell you. If only uh, Phil Robertson had kept on playing football and had started the Duck Dynasty after his uh, football college football career, maybe we never would have heard from Terry Bradshaw. I don't know. Anyway, be that as it may, Raheem Kassam says, Twitter is blocking people from retweeting my tweet which says some people die after taking the COVID vaccine and there is immunity for the drug companies. Neither of those things are false. That's right. Neither of those things are false. But big tech doesn't want the truth coming out. That's why. I'm so thankful. That God has opened the door. Allowing me to do this. And there's so much. There's so much I wanted to get to today. Chairman of the National Republican Senate Committee, Rick Scott, says he absolutely supports Lisa Murkowski in her race for re-election in Alaska and will help her campaign against her challenger, in the primary, who Donald Trump endorsed. Again, the great Nick Searcy, the great Nick Searcy says, I pledge never to send any more money to any Republican organization or individual who supports candidates like Lisa Murkowski or Liz Cheney. They're bad folks. They stand for the wrong things. Like the further, the further destruction of our country. And Rick Scott, I've interviewed before when I was in Florida. I thought he's a good guy. Uh, he doesn't care. They got R by the name. He doesn't care. Look, um, <clears throat> can can I leave you with a, a good news story? Let me throw a little good news story in here. Kind of feel good story. Police in Chicago say an elderly man with a concealed carry license shot and killed a robber on Saturday afternoon. The 77-year-old was in a garage on East 89th near MLK in West Chesterfield around 12.30 p.m. when the robber drove up Saturday afternoon. Robber pulled out a gun, demanded the elderly man's stuff. Instead of handing his things over, the elderly man pulled out a gun and shot the robber in the head and chest. He was pronounced dead at the scene. On Sunday, he was identified as Bernard Peterson. Oh, okay, the Chicago Petersons, yes. Chicago police said the elderly man has a valid firearms owner identification card and a concealed carry license. Chicago Fire Department confirmed he is a retired firefighter. How about that? Your feel-good story of the day. Look, always carry, always carry. It's a way of life. Don't say, oh, I won't need to carry 
over there. Uh, I, I won't need to carry if I'm going to that place. That's a safe place. That's what a lot of people thought of the Lubies in, uh, was it Colleen, Texas? Where the guy drove the uh, pickup truck through the plate glass window and started shooting everybody? Way back in the early 90s? See, the law in Texas at the time was that um, <clears throat> you conceal carry, but if you're going in a place like a restaurant, you had to leave your gun out in the car. So uh, Susanna Grasha Hupp was sitting there having dinner with her mom and dad when the guy drove through the plate glass window in his truck and started shooting people. She's like, let me get my gun out of my purse. Oh, that's right. I was a good girl. I didn't want to break the law I left in the car. And so her mom and dad died that day. And so she ran for a state legislature and got the law changed, allowing Texans to actually protect and defend themselves and their loved ones. Always carry. Uh, especially my listeners in Arkansas, you don't want to wind up being Arkansas, do you? Always carry. All right, I'm Doc Washburn. God bless you. Thank you so much. This has been episode 20. The longest one yet, but there was just so much to talk about. Episode 20, Monday, November 8th, 2021. We appreciate your support. Thank you again. God bless Dan Bongino. Sorry, it was um, quite an experience being on his program Friday. May the Lord bless him for what he's trying to do to stand up for people who really are not financially in the place where he is to be able to really stand up for themselves. I appreciate it. All right, we will see you uh, tomorrow, uh, God willing, right here. Thank you so much. Over and out.